0: Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer.
1: And I'm Gabriel Marcotti. And I thank you for joining us on this Thursday. And in the studio with us, it's the very excellent James Gearbrand. Down the line from somewhere, uh, no doubt, posh in West London, it's Matt Dickinson. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Later on, we'll be talking about a tough time coming up for Tottenham. And uh, also, where some of England's Nation League star performers go from here as they return to their club sides. And presumably a few fewer minutes on the pitch.
0: But we start with the game of the weekend in the Premier League. Jose Mourinho returns to Stamford Bridge as Manchester United make the trip to Chelsea, who are unbeaten under Maurizio Sarri. Matt, we thought Mourinho was a goner both before uh, the Newcastle game and also at half-time. Were there signs in that second half that United have turned a corner? Um, oh, that's,
2: It's it's so hard to say, isn't it? Because ultimately, you know, they they clawed their way back in. Incredible drama. Um, but, you know, the idea that, you know, that suddenly cured everything, uh, I think is fanciful. I think, you know, basically Mourinho is still a guy who is, is fair, fair to ask whether he wants to be there. Those questions remain very necessary, very legitimate and will and we'll be asked this week, next week and I suspect until the end of the season And does anyone really think he's going to be manager of Manchester United next season?
0: Uh, Tom Clark has dissected Pogba's uh, stats this season which you can read by the way at thetimes.co.uk and, and Tom finds that Pogba has had the most shots and second most passes in the opposition half of any midfielder he's certainly involved but is he maybe trying too much?
2: Well, I think we've seen the, the sort of turbulence in his United performances. Has I mean, I come back to that. I mean, I thought just because I love I loved the phrase and, and I love the way it was applied, the, the Vieira column we did um, just at the start of the World Cup where he used that phrase about, I won't try the French version, but of uh, putting water in the wine, which, as Patrick explained, was about... In football terms, it was about stopping, showing off, stopping. He was being too flamboyant, too try-hard in that sense, uh, that he was trying to be too clever. He was over-elaborating his game, and he needed to sort of dilute it, water in his wine, and simplify it. And I think that's exactly what we saw with France at the World Cup. And and there's been a lot of rightful discussion about, you know, when you've got Kante next to you, that's probably a lot of a simpler job to do Um, with United. Mourinho made his name by being one of the most ordered strategic best plan you know, I remember speaking to one of the Chelsea players in his first reign there about where they knew, you know, the nearest blade of grass they had to stand to in certain situations. This United team has has lacked any kind of, of sense of clear purpose and pattern. I think
3: one of the things that is um interesting slash difficult about Pogba and, and you talked about the the article that, that Tom wrote. I think Hogman does have I think he does have quite a unique skill set. And and I think as Tom showed in the article that he wrote, he's a very good passer. And last season only I think four players had more assists than him in the Premier League. And I think, I think all, they all played for City. They're all, they're all Man City <laughs> players, exactly. But he's not sort of, you know, he's not a pure creator. He's also he's also very good at winning duels, for example, in in the in the centre of the the pitch. He can be, as you know, we've we've touched on in that France World Cup team he can be a very disciplined deep-lying playmaker but equally he's someone who is also very good getting forward and you know who can get shots off and attack the box so I think there is a certain difficulty in managing a player like that who maybe doesn't sort of neatly fall into any categories and I think with Mourinho, you know, it's not sort of as as we talked about many times. his attacking football. It's not super super structured, like you know, for example, Maurizio Sarri's Chelsea. You know, there is a certain amount of improvisational kind of leeway afforded to his attacking players. And I think an interesting question is, you know, would Pogba be better off in a in you know in a much more kind of structured, disciplined attack where you know maybe.
1: But based on what you suggest, though. And, and I agree with you that Mourinho's system is generally, you know, more ordered, and the attack is more about individuals rather than patterns of play. Mm. That should actually favor Pogba in the sense that if the people around him are ordered, he's the guy who who can improvise. He's the guy who can seek out the one on ones, make his make make his talent be the difference, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming this is probably. I would get. I'm mean, going to give Mourinho the benefit of the doubt here. Today is be nice to Mourinho day. Is, Are
0: you feeling all right, Gav?
1: Uh, no. I, I, <laughs> honestly, um, especially if we talk about his, his FA charge, I will stick up for him. But I, I think the issue is he would have wanted to have the structured system and then Pogba with some leeway, maybe Sanchez with some leeway as well. Mm. I think what he ran into, though, is he decided that the other bits in his system either aren't good enough or he doesn't think they're good enough or he's destroyed their confidence or just decided to blame them for no reason in some cases. But, you know, once you realize that you don't have that faith in in Fred, in the center backs and the other pieces around you, all of a sudden, then you don't have Pogba operating as sort of the wild card in a structured system, but you just have chaos around him and then he becomes part of the chaos, perhaps.
3: Completely. And, and, And obviously also, you know, not that there has to be, but, you know, as we talked about The United team changes quite a lot from game to game. The game plan changes quite a lot. So it's not like Pogba is doing his thing kind of within a very kind of settled system.
0: Gav, you you mentioned the possible touchline ban. Can you expand on that any further for us with regards to Mourinho?
1: Yeah, this is nothing but but pure idiocy by whoever went and, and charged him. And this ban relates to when he was walking off the pitch afterwards This is the Newcastle game. In the Newcastle, yes. He was mouthing something and waving his pinky in the air. It's not like he went up to a camera, stood in front of it, and started mouthing something, which, by the way, nobody heard because there was no audio to it. You could lip-read if you happen to be deaf or if you happen to be a lip-reader, but then you need to be able to lip-read and also speak Portuguese because he was talking in, in Portuguese. And the BT Sport cameras you know, caught him walking off the pitch. And because some people tweeted, ooh, he's saying all sorts of nasty, obscene things, the FA looked into it. And I have several problems with this. First and foremost, the fact that it took him 10 days to charge him. The FA said they needed to get expert lip readers and language experts in. Here's a hint. The only reason to go and punish somebody for using obscenities is if they bring the game into disrepute, somehow uh, reflect badly on your product, Right. If it takes you 10 days to even figure out whether he said something he shouldn't have, most likely most people wouldn't have noticed it. And if you had just moved on from it, you wouldn't have, have attracted attention to this. That's the most basic point. But the other point is, how many swearing to himself in a foreign language with the sound off is not something that the FA should be involved in, especially now. I don't know how much money they spent on these so-called language experts and so-called lip readers, and I'm naturally predisposed against lip readers because it was lip readers employed by newspapers that put somebody I've known for a long time, like Marco Materazzi, they absolutely crucified him in public for supposedly saying racist, horrible things to Zinedine Zidane, and it wasn't until Zidane himself came out and said, no, he never said anything racist or anything to do with terrorists or whatever, and then Marco rightly went and sued these newspapers, and they had to settle and pay up. Um, So My faith in lip readers is pretty low, especially of the kind that get, you know, these sort of hired guns who go in to provide um, services to associations like the F.A. and whatever. But leaving that to one side, is this really something that you want to spend time on? All this does is give Mourinho more fodder to Mm. be like, look, everybody's Mm. against me. They're part of the the master underground conspiracy that, that ranges from Pogba to Eric Baye to Ed Woodward to the Glazers to Scholes and Rio Ferdinand. Everybody's against me. And I, I don't, he's, I mean, he's not right in the sense there is no conspiracy, it only exists in his head, but he's right on this case.
0: Let's move away from Mourinho then, focus on the game at Stamford Bridge. James, people haven't really treated Chelsea as, as title challengers thus far. That will change with a victory, won't it?
3: Chelsea, I mean, they're top or their they're, they're level on points at the top of the Premier League at, at the moment, probably prior to the start of the season, I think most people probably peg Liverpool as... City's closest challengers, I think, obviously because of the success they've had in the Champions League, and I think I think their recruitment as well, and and obviously I suppose they're they're more settled in terms of the the manager. They're in a different phase of Klopp's project than than Chelsea are, obviously under Sarri. But for me, just going on purely the the football that they've played so far, I haven't seen much so far to separate Liverpool from from Chelsea to say that you know Liverpool are title contenders, but Chelsea aren't purely on. On the basis of what's gone on the pitch, that may that may change. I think Chelsea do have vulnerabilities, but I think if they were to to win here, I mean, clearly the squad has adapted to the demands of playing Sarri's style of football quite well and quite quickly. I think they will have to be in the in the conversation.
0: What are those vulnerabilities?
3: I think as we saw in the game against Arsenal in the, in the first half, they have certain defensive vulnerabilities. I think obviously like a lot of teams that that play very much on the front foot, I think they can be I think they certainly could be quite susceptible on the counter and I think that is obviously reinforced by the, the fact that A you have one of the best counter-attack stoppers in world football, and Golo Conte playing a slightly different role this season and maybe playing in a slightly more advanced position where he's not quite so able to to stop counters and also I don't think Chelsea have been particularly I think they've been particularly good at, at winning the ball back in the opposition half so far under Sarri. That that may change and evolve but I think certainly, you know, particularly with, with Conte slightly higher up the pitch, that central defensive pairing of, of Rudiger and David Luiz, which has been pretty good so far, I think, I think could be, by really good attacks, I think could be got out.
0: This season, with your subscription to The Times and the Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. Every Thursday at thetimes.co.uk, our stats guru, Bill Edgar, provides 11 trivia teasers for you, and here's one on this podcast. And our teaser today is, as of the start of the Premier League era in August 1992, Liverpool had won the most major trophies among English clubs, 33. But who was second on that list? I mean, we're going back a while, so you have to really think about it,
1: but Um. it's tricky. Yeah, I I don't know. I genuinely haven't looked at the end. I might have guessed Arsenal or Everton. Okay. I'm assuming it's not Manchester United because they won a ton afterwards. Mm -hmm. Obviously, obviously were very bad for a long time. Mm -hmm. But watch, it's going to be something stupid like Huddersfield or something. (laughs) The Herbert Chapman thing. I can't wait to find the answer.
0: Yes, stick around to the end to find out. The first half in Seville on Monday was beyond every England fan's wildest dreams as Gareth Southgate's side raced into a three-goal lead over Spain, three-two, the final score as England recorded their first ever Nations League win. And Matt, how impressed were you, particularly with that first half performance?
2: Uh, well, who wasn't? No, I mean it's 3 um, 0 up against Spain after was it thirty-nine minutes in Spain um, takes um, takes some doing, but I, I'm just, I, I'm really. Well, pleased on a number number of ways. Obviously, there was the individual players. We saw uh, Raheem Sterling, you know, sort of get that whole drought and that whole conversation sort of um, off his chest. We saw Rashford, who had, you know, stumbled over a couple of chances in in Croatia. We saw Kane show that you don't have to be scoring goals to be so hugely effective, incredibly intelligent uh, forward play uh, and great link play. Um, But uh, overall, I guess, and and it applies to the two games, it was just great to see uh, England's sort of um, new plan, one that I think quite a lot of us have talked about, um, especially around the Croatia semi-final at the the World Cup and that need need then to have changed the system. And and Gareth Southgate has shown that learning from mistakes and broadening his mind and changing styles um, is well within his sort of compass and uh, among his... His strengths, and it was great that that whole you know idea of whether you know was it just one blessed summer? Did we just get lucky? It doesn't have to be that way. You know we're not world beaters. We've got a lot to improve, a lot to gain. But it's you know the, the conversation around England is different now than it has been for a lot of my professional career. You know my my kids talk about England because of what happened in the summer in a different way than they have talked about. For a lot of their lives, and and that is a good thing.
1: One issue, though, is that, uh, and it's increasingly an issue, I think, for a lot of uh, some of the bigger national sides in Europe, is some of these England players that we admired, like Barkley and Winks, they just don't get a lot of minutes at club level. James, we know why this is the case, which mm. is that you know, frankly, even a team like 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 Chelsea or Spurs would probably wipe the floor with both most national teams, including England. What can be done? What should be done? Does it even really matter? I mean is it really as long as Winx trains all years and does well enough, uh Winx or Barkley does well enough when they get called upon, is it such a bad thing if they play fewer minutes and then play a lot with a national team?
3: There's a big difference, first of all. There's a big difference between not playing at all and playing a bit. And I think that's something that's really, you know, Germaine, in the case of, of barkley and winks you know they've both gone through long periods where they really haven't played virtually at all maybe in the kind of domestic cups but they haven't really played much sort of frontline football and in the past month they both they both have you know whether they're first choice starters you know maybe not but they've played enough to come back into gareth southgate's thinking and i think what's kind of interesting is what you touched on that you know England are in a pretty good place right now. You know they're, I think they're a pretty good team. They obviously are coming off a you know World Cup semi-final. The ceiling is high, but the entry point is pretty low. <laughs> you know you don't have to. You know you really don't have to do a lot to come back into contention for the squad. You know Ross Barkley and
1: always Unless you're Glenn Murray, who keeps getting overlooked.
3: Yeah, true, true. As we said, they they've you know really not played very much at all for a long period. You know probably about. Twelve months in both cases, and you know it's really only taken probably three, four, five good performances in in both cases for them for them to come back into the squad. You don't have to be playing all the time, but I think you have to be playing a little bit. And I think any other players who kind of watching what's happened with Ross Barkley, how quickly he has come back into being, you know, in contention for an England place, will probably look at that and think, you know, I need to get minutes.
1: Are you as bullish as James is about Barkley and, and Winks? Um,
2: I think they're going to get game time. I mean, it's it's um, a club level. A club level, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, Barkley. Sarah seems to have some trust in, in Barkley. Barkley's talked um, himself about that he feels like he's. I mean, his his problem has has been absorbing, uh, understanding positional play. You know, he's changed. He, he, I remember having long chats with David Moyes about it, about how you know when he was younger he sort of he was very much the sort of Gerard all-action player. He had obviously terrible injuries, came back a different player, a slightly different mindset. Um, but the biggest issue they were trying to get through to him was was about yeah off the ball work, about positioning, about discipline, tactical plan. Yeah, there seems to be something good happening between those two that 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 seems to be developing his game. It's sort of it feels a bit belated to be honest, but it's it, you know it seems to be happening, and and he's obviously not going to be playing every game, but there seems to be a rotation of those midfield players that that's going to give him enough game time that he will be in England squads, and I think the same will be true of Winks. He's going to play enough that Southgate will be able to pick him and not. Yeah, not fret too much
3: that he's um rusty. I, I agree with Matt. I think I think both those players have a shot at getting a reasonable amount of game time between now and the end of the season. I think in Barkley's case, he appears to be, you know, at least the fourth choice midfielder in, in Sarri's plans and, you know, with a with a three man midfield Sarri's gonna want to rotate and I think clearly he is gonna play some minutes, unless Mateo Kovacic starts playing absolutely out
1: of this world. And just, is, or Ruben Loftus-Cheek.
3: Well, I, but I don't think... They, <laughs> much That's as some old. of us love Ruben, I don't think... Uh, he just he, he doesn't right. appear to be in Sarah's plans at all. And I think we'll, we'll go on and talk about Tottenham, but I think with Winks, I think Musa Dembele appears to be in quite drastic decline, and I think Winks has that, a... Well, we'll, we'll, we'll come on to that.
1: Yeah, um... Some people are really bored or don't understand the Wembley story. Um, okay. So <laughs> we should ask Dicko to explain it to us because if you picked up the paper or if you went on the Times app after 5 o'clock yesterday, as I did, you saw this really impassioned mm. piece by, by Henry Winter talking about, I think it started with describing sort of a, a tear slowly trickling down the lovely. face of English football.
0: It made me emotional, yeah. I say.
1: I then you wonder what does this have to do with a stadium not being sold? Background: This guy named Shah Khan, the guy with the mustache, who owns Fulham, made a bid, or was so six hundred million pounds plus various add-ons, plus various guarantees to basically buy Wembley. This would have been a big cash infusion for the Football Association. And the thinking: people like like Henry and and what the people at the top of the FA. They made the point, well, we're going to take these monies and contribute it to the grassroots, the Football Foundation, also coming out very strongly, saying we could have bought pitches and stuff like that. My personal take was always that without knowing the exact numbers, and uh, I don't know, who knows how much Wembley Stadium really is worth, it's kind of hard to tell. Other people, like the FA Council it became pretty clear would have voted against it, and which is why Shad Khan withdrew his his offer. Other people felt differently. Uh, the FA Council, again, for those who don't know, is sometimes dismissively described as the Blazer Brigade. It's 127 people, many of whom actually are grassroots football in this, um, or who you know run smaller clubs, amateur clubs, stuff like that. They were against it, as was Dicko Gary Neville, who I'm a big fan of. You're much closer to him, I think, than than any of us. He said it was ridiculous. He said that there was other ways to raise this money. Who are you siding with, God or Mammon? Here, Henry or Gary? And you can't sit on the fence.
2: Ah, uh, well, I, I, I mean, I disagree with Henry on on a few points. I mean, he's you know part, part of Henry's. Sort of, um, as you say, impassioned piece this morning is that he sort of hates Wembley. Full stop. Which I don't get. I I, I like the idea of a national stadium. I, I, you know, um, this isn't a question of whether it should be in London or Manchester or Birmingham. You know, I think it's at Wembley because historically there was a site there. That site has a heck of a lot of prestige. And I like the idea, full stop, of a national stadium. I liked, as a kid growing up, dreaming of, well, I dreamt of playing there, but um, dreamt even of just going to watch a game there. I've left occasions at Wembley, you know, old and new Wembley, feeling proud that this country, you know, has a place that a lot of the world aspires to visit as well. And, you know, there's massive regeneration around the area. There's a university... Sort of on the doorstep. There's, you know, um, new buildings, new restaurants, and and it is no longer a, a dump to visit. So, uh, you know, I think Wembley's got a lot going for it. And you know, the fact is that the FA sums were always that, you know, they took on a lot of debt, they would pay off that debt and then it would make a small profit, um, which would then go into English football. And unless they're you know, unless they've been lying, that that path is still you know it's going to take until 2024. I understand to pay off the debt, but when that is paid off, there will be more money—not a fortune, but more money going back into English football. So, if that, you know, if that, unless they are you know hoodwinking us with that, then if that remains the the case, then absolutely, I saw a case for examining examining selling it. I absolutely, I think it had to be taken seriously. This offer, I didn't think the money much as it could be well used, was going to be transformative for every little kid in the country who dreams of playing football. I, I, I crave more 3G pitches like everyone else. But um, So if you're asking me to, to sort of come down on one side or the other, I, I, um, I want more money and I want the FA to use it sensibly, but uh, you know, if, if the sums are right that they can still make a profit from this that's good for English football, then um, the collapse of this shouldn't be uh, a nightmare.
1: That was basically Gary Neville's argument as well, right?
2: Well, the thing is, there's, you know, there's, there is mistrust about some of the sums, which is, you know, you can understand that mistrust for, for a number of reasons. And, you know, the, the FA sort of, obviously, the, the hierarchy want to, to sell it. So then suddenly sort of briefings were coming out about, oh, well, we might have to spend a fortune to fix this or fix that. Uh, you know, and that's coming six months after we're told, no, 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 we're on course to pay off the debt and to you know, make a profit, so there's, you know, and I, I don't think the FA, you know, from all I've heard, did themselves any favours by talking about, well, if, if, if they sold it, this, the, the, the money could be value matched by other organisations, you know, there, I, it was over, I think, you know, that's why a lot of the council kicked against it, it was sort of over, oversold the, the, the potential value of this deal. Um, and, I, I, yeah, I think there was a degree of mistrust around the figures which hasn't, hasn't helped, or didn't help, the FA's case in trying to push the sale.
0: Let's move on to uh, Tottenham then, who, of course, are playing their home games at the moment at uh, Wembley. But they make the trip to uh, the London Stadium on Saturday to face West Ham in the Premier League. It marks the start of a tough stretch of fixtures. West Ham away, PSV away and Manchester City at home. And then doesn't get much better after that. PSV again, Palace away, Inter and a North London derby as well. On December the first, Yan and Deli Ali could miss that entire spell. And James, can we come up with uh, constructive suggestions for for Pochettino?
3: Deli Ali is not the player that he was. He's evolved, and he's no longer so much that sort of you know penalty box player, that sort of you know out and out second striker. He is more of a sort of creator. He's more sort of in a slightly deeper line position. So it's really exacerbated by the fact that Moussa Dembele, all right. Albeit he's not a direct creator or assist provider in the same way that Ali and Eriksson are, but he's been pretty reliable for Tottenham in previous seasons at moving the ball into the into the final third. He, for reasons that are not particularly clear, his performance has really has really nosedived. To be honest, if if, if you look at the stats in terms of the pretty much everything, uh, I mean I, I read about it in the game uh, two or three weeks ago, the sort of. Part number of passes he's playing, you know the number of passes he's playing into the final third. He's all his production is that has just really fallen away, and and that is a huge problem for Tottenham because it just leaves them with a sort of massive kind of creativity hole in in the centre of the pitch, and obviously one which you know Eric Dyer, for all his strengths, is not really his game, and he he's not really going to fill that.
1: Well, Wanamaker wouldn't fit.
3: Yeah, I do think Harry Winks does have a have a role to play. I think in many ways he's still. Clearly, because of the amount of senior football he's played, he's still quite unproven in some ways, but he does have the sort of passing game that might at least help to fill some of that. Um, it is tricky. I think one thing that has really helped Tottenham in, and that will you know, continue to help them if these injuries are serious is that Kieran Trippier has really developed over the last sort of few months and has really evolved into an extremely creative fullback and so he's kind of taking up a little bit of that slack which is helping but yeah it's a, it's a big problem for, for Pochettino.
0: Some have suggested that by the time the Tongan returns in December Spurs could be in the Europa League having finished third in their Champions League. I, I love Group. this.
1: I love, can I say something? <laughs> and this isn't directed. I, it's the absolute arrogance Oh, they could be the Europa, they could finish third. No, they could be last. Well, they they could. could be home, they yes. could be done. Okay. Scoreboard, zero points. All right, Gab. Seriously.
0: But let's just be slightly positive for Tottenham and Tottenham fans. Just, I just there's Tottenham, nothing I mean, be positive
1: about here. <laughs> and you know what? Actually, you know, if you want to be positive, actually, for Spurs, it might even be better, if, if they are going to have all these injuries, it might even be better to be out with it already, since the squad isn't that big. Right, and then you can maybe focus on getting to the top four. But I love this, 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 this little assumption. Ooh, like they could, they could be third. (laughs) No, they could be last. No, they They have zero points right now. Yes, and I mean, look, I you're right. These games are pretty huge. PSV should have beaten Inter Milan, or should at least had a draw, right? They they are certainly better, I think, than their results show. This game is huge. Spurs don't win this game. It's over, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe not mathematically, but realistically, it's over. And then maybe you can you can think about tanking the rest of your of your Champions League matches, see how that goes. But it's a really tough spot to be in and you realize I think with Vertonghen now, you're stuck with Aldo Varel, Davinson Sanchez. And if there's one thing we know is that Marie, is that Pochettino occasionally like shifting them around, sometimes switching to a three, sometimes alternating the two i don't think he's got the option he's not gonna have the option to do that right now so it just adds adds further misery i think this is the single biggest test of pochettino's ability to come up with something whether it's following the gear brand suggestion tactically put your faith in winks or whatever but i'll say what If pochettino gets through this his credentials for being one of the best managers in the premier league i think are just further burnished because this situation really is not his fault
0: but then, does this all play into the the narrative uh, that that Tottenham didn't strengthen in the summer Matt?
2: There's obviously a danger. I mean, I know Matthew Side wrote a piece sort of saying, "Well, this, you know, this shows, you know, that it empowers players; it gives them responsibility." And obviously, we just talked about Winks, and there are, you know, there, you know, there's room for improvement from Tottenham without buying players. You can you can see that there's, um, and Pochettino's you know, done a great job of of sort of. Moving on, de- developing players. Yeah, you know, football. You tend to a lot of the time get what you pay for, and Tottenham have been punching above their financial weight for three, four, five years. I mean, that's 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 a fact. For them to come in the top four, takes people to to, to go above and beyond, and and maybe there's a time when that's going to run out.
4: Hi there, and welcome to the Sweeper, the Times' is fantasy football tip service. It's Game Week 9, I'm Charlie Scott and I'm joined by Paddy Bombear. Hello. So Paddy, what's uh, what should we be worrying about this week?
5: Well, I am slightly worried about something that I saw um, a few days ago, which was Alexander Mitrovic dropping in price. Really? It seems that fantasy managers are abandoning him, which I'm very confused by and would urge you not to follow suit. Fulham have got Huddersfield, Cardiff and Bournemouth, I think, in their next three. Uh, he's still the focal point striker of a good attacking team. And while you're at it, I'll suggest buying André Scherler as well.
4: Yeah, nice. £5.9 million for Scherler and owned by 4.8% of managers. So get a bit of a jump on your rivals in your mini leagues with that one. Absolutely. And what about Liverpool? Inj- oh. Injuries abound. I mean, there's so many. They all went off on their international break. And the list is Salah, Mane, kater Van Dijk. Yeah. Milner's already injured. Yeah.
5: It always happens in international breaks, and it's why we always warn you don't make any transfers too early in the uh, the double week off. I think the advice this week is wait until Jürgen Klopp has his say in his press conference. He may confirm who's out, who's in, who's not. He may not, of course, but if he does, then it's going to make your life a lot easier.
4: There's one man whose return is imminent. Yes. Kevin De Bruyne? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think...
5: He's obviously an important part to the City team He loads of assists About 20 a season for the past two years And a few goals with it He'll probably play this weekend But he may start from the bench So I would say give it a week Then they've got Spurs away Maybe give it two weeks before you sign him But he's definitely one to get on your radar More important I think is to try and get Benjamin Mendy back in your team If you're one of the many who sold him He's fit again um, And probably going to start scoring points Like he did at the start of the season captain picks who are you thinking this weekend oh I'd love to captain Salah if he's fit um, away to Huddersfield and if clock gives me the
4: green light I think I will (laughs) but otherwise it's got to be Aguero doesn't it Aguero against Burnley yeah you'd think so although Man United just their defence is all over the shop I quite like Hazard he is in form against Mourinho I like that. Plenty of tips to come this
5: week in our email. Just sign up at thetimes.co.uk forward slash fantasy football or just
4: follow the link in the podcast description. Uh, and we've got a Facebook group as well. We do. Just search for The Sweeper on Facebook and join the fan.
0: Time now for our weekly predictions game where after weeks and weeks of going head to oh, head, it is now Marcotti 4, for Sawyer 4.
1: Yes, you're the <laughs> comeback kid. You're you're basically Jose Mourinho. Oh, I mean, I mean in a good way, okay. coming back from
0: well, I, I, I don't know,
1: episode. long term. That's good. <laughs> Speaking of, let's get started at his old yes. home, Chelsea against Manchester United. What do you got?
0: Well, I, I just don't think it's going to get any easier for them, so I'm going for a two-one Chelsea win.
1: Yeah, I'm on board with that. I'm just going to say two-nil.
0: South Coast Derby to look forward to: Bournemouth against Southampton.
1: Bournemouth are doing well. The question, you always wonder, you know, can it last? I think this break takes some momentum um, mm-hmm. away from them. Um, I'm going to go for a 1-1 draw.
0: Oh, OK. Well, I, on the other hand, think that Bournemouth are doing really well. They're unbeaten at home this season, taking on a side are on a bit of a losing streak as well. So I'm, I'm only seeing an, an Eddie Howe side victory for this one, a 2-0 win for Bournemouth.
1: You like Eddie more than Sparky, don't you? You uh, do, don't you? Yeah, He's I a, think yeah, I do, yeah, but I don't yeah, know why. I just fine. think I do. Yeah, yeah. that's fine. <laughs>
0: Uh, What about the game at Goodison Park? Everton against Crystal Palace.
1: I still find it hard to judge Everton. I have picked up Marco Silva for so long. They bring in all these players. They're coming along little by little. As you know, I was a big Bernard guy. Um, He's shown glimpses. But I think the issue with Palace right now is I think they've got some serious injuries up front. So I have Everton here. 1-0.
0: Oh, snap. That's the same for me. 1-0 win.
1: Ooh, moving down into uh, into the lower stretches <laughs> of the uh, football food chain, um, Aston Villa and yes. and the Swans. Yes. Now this is nice because it's 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 Dean Smiths and Richard O'boy. O'Kelly O'Kelly.
0: Sorry, <laughs> Boyle is that what a classic Irish name? Well, I was I was
1: <laughs> It's weird because I'm not. I've, I've obviously been familiar with many people's last name is Kelly, but he's the only O'Kelly. Is that is that common? The the o, um, o and then Kelly.
0: I don't know now you've said that. I'm assuming that. you
1: know more Irish people than I do, right?
0: Uh, yeah, but I don't know any O'Kellys other than. Is Richard he your boyfriend O'Kellys? Irish? He is, but he's not ask an O'Kelly.
1: Ask him if he knows any O'Kellys except for this one. I will do. All right, and we can we can report back on, on Monday. <laughs> we will. And the Swans have had a slightly difficult time, yes. if I'm not mistaken.
0: Well, yes, but not as bad as Aston Villa, who only won one of their last ten. But I actually just think the new manager effect and obviously maybe I still have a soft spot for Dean Smith. I think he's going to inspire a 2-1 win.
1: All right. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go in the opposite direction and, uh, and pick Swansea to win
0: 1-0. Okay. We're going to hop over to Germany for our final game. Wolfsburg against Bayern Munich.
1: Wolfsburg, which of course isn't really a football club, it's a football works team, because if you've ever been to Wolfsburg, it's it really is It's a train station with the VW plant attached to it. You can actually see it from the train, taking on a struggling Bayern yes, uh, Munich really team. Struggling. It'll be interesting to see too, like the Bayern players coming back from the Germany experience where they played much, much better against France. Uh, dare I say they were unlucky to lose, uh, I thought. But by the same token, you know you've got some guys who've been dropped, like uh, Jerome Boateng. You've got and Thomas Muller, of course. Uh, it's a tough time for them. I'm going to uh, I'm going to go for the draw here. Two two.
0: Oh, oh. Well, I've gone for the draw as well, but I've gone for one all draw. Just time to give you the answer to Bill Edgar's teaser. We asked you, as of the start of the Premier League era in 1992, Liverpool had won the most major trophies among English clubs, 33. But who was second on that list? Gab, you went for Arsenal possibly or Everton?
1: That's right. It's it's Dean Smith's new stomping ground. <laughs> it's Aston Villa. There you go. Yeah, You should have forgotten it because I, I, I was so focused on on Premier League clubs, but... No, obviously. because
0: there was no football before the Premier League. Exactly. It's confusing. I understand. No,
1: but but it, but it, but yeah, it does. It does make sense that that it was Villa and that it couldn't be United because that would have been too obvious. United were close, actually. Villa had won eighteen major trophies. Uh, United had had uh, seventeen and were third in that. So Alex Ferguson, on his own, won more trophies in twenty-one years than uh, United have won in their entire history before or after wow, pretty remarkable too. and that's manchester united we're talking not some Poxy team yeah anyway uh many thanks to our guests today james gearbrandt and of course matt dickinson uh,
0: remember you can subscribe to the times and the sunday times to enjoy award winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet it's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial search the times
1: subscription for more information we're gonna be back on monday with the return of the champions league
0: i'm not here no. I'm, going to, I'm, I'm actually going to ah. Ireland, so I'll try and find a, a, an O'Kelly.
1: So, yes, yeah, so it'll be just me on Monday. Well, not just me. I'll presumably have other guests in the studio with me. But sadly, no Natalie. And uh, we'll be looking ahead to Manchester United against Juventus in the Champions League. And looking back on the weekend's Premier League action. The game is brought to you by The Times.
5: For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to
4: thetimes.co.uk.